This is Understanding Joel, a weekly podcast where we unpack the themes and ideas found in the book of Joel and try to apply them to the modern day. Uh, It is part of a larger project where we look at different books of the Bible and teach them. We want to have a resource for you while you're going about your day to listen to, to get the Bible into your daily routine. And this is something that's so crucial that we read some of these books that we might skip over. Joel is one of the minor prophets, and oftentimes the minor prophets don't get the credit they deserve. But we want to bridge the gap. We don't want them to seem alien or foreign to us, but see them as they really are, the inspired word of God. And it is useful and profitable for teaching us and equipping us to do what God has called us to do and to be the people that God has called us to be. If you've been following with us, the first chapter of Joel we looked at in the last episode centers around a call to lament. And Joel is calling the people of Israel to lament over a natural disaster that has occurred, where a a plague of locusts has come in and raised the land and disrupted this largely agrarian economy. So this is a national tragedy for them. And Joel says, in light of this, you need to remember who you belong to, that God is sovereign over all things that God will judge all things, and that though we can't draw a one-to-one match between sin and natural disasters, we need to be careful about that. Nevertheless, it's meant to remind us of our mortality, that we aren't the captains of our own destiny, so to speak. And it all centers around this one phrase, the day of the Lord. And we mentioned that in the last episode as well. The day of the Lord is a phrase found throughout the Old Testament that refers to a decisive historic action of God uh, to fulfill his plans, his good purposes. And often it comes in the form of either judgment or salvation, and often both. Uh, Judgment comes before salvation. And what we see in the plague of locusts and what we're going to see today in the invasion of a foreign army in Joel chapter 2, the first 17 verses, we're going to see little examples of God's day of the Lord. These are historic, again, judgments by God meant to accomplish his purposes. And this is a terrifying reality that God is in control and he does see the hearts of men. And that when we recognize that God is rightfully disciplining his people, we need to respond with repentance. And that is a major theme of Joel chapter 2 which is repentance. So listen along as I read Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations." Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. 
They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? There are a variety of redemptive images in this passage. And many of them are drawn from Genesis. So, for example, Israel itself is referred to as the Garden of Eden, a prosperous land graciously gifted to God's children. When the armies invade against Israel, they usher in the day of the Lord. Again, that is a word, a term describing all the different judgments and acts of God in history to accomplish his purposes. And they're all leading up to a final day of the Lord at the end of time, when God will judge Israel's enemies and save his people. But up until that final day of the Lord, there are many, many days of the Lord. And in chapter one, it's the plague of locusts. And in chapter two, it's this invading army from the north, which if you read the prophets, most of God's judgments come from the north. It's a sign of discipline from God. But the day of the Lord is described in symbolic language. We hear language of earthquakes, trembling heavens, and the sun, moon, and stars going dark. Now, these are not meant to show literal events or phenomena, but rather they're decreation language. And what I mean by that is they're taking elements of the creation narrative using the sun, moon, and stars, and the earth, and the heavens, and dismantling them, making them disintegrate and fall apart. And it's a symbolic vision of God's judgment. Decreation is an act of judgment. And prophets like Isaiah use similar language when they describe political upheaval. Whenever kingdoms are brought down, uh, this, this similar imagery is used. So from that, we can see that Israel's old order is about to be shaken to the ground. And it's going to bring about a new era, a new change. So God is going to use his foreign army to disrupt Israel's system into a kind of death in order that a resurrection of Israel might occur, of renewal. Now, one of the things this brings up is the issue of repentance. God basically tells Israel, listen, this discipline is, is not meant for me just to cause you harm. I, I'm causing this harm because I want your hearts to turn back to me. I want you to recognize that this invasion is coming because of your sin. And we see that. Uh, at the time of Joel, Israel is split into two nations. This is following Solomon's empire. The, the northern kingdom is called Israel, or often referred to as Samaria. And the southern region is called Judah. And what we see, if you read First and Second Kings, is that Israel, the northern kingdom, is taken over by Assyria, 
as a judgment for their sin. And then centuries later, Judah is taken over by Babylon. They're sent into exile, taken from the land and placed under subjugation to Nebuchadnezzar as judgment for their idolatry and sin. And that's what the book of Daniel is about. So this is common to the biblical narrative of God using foreign armies to judge and to chasten and correct his people. Now, God says, I want your obedience to be a rending of your hearts, not merely your garments. Now, it's too simple to say that God is not after external things, only internal things, because God does command external things. In fact, in Joel itself, God commands a solemn assembly. He commands all of Israel to gather publicly. Uh, He commands in Leviticus many outward rituals. These are important. So we don't want to just draw a distinction between external actions and internal motivations. But it is to say that God doesn't want us to merely have external actions. He wants to have a changed heart. That's the goal. And that's the idea behind rending your hearts. Don't just come out and do a song and dance about how sorry you are for your sin. Do you genuinely from your heart desire to follow the Lord, to obey his word, to repent, to cast away your idolatry and sin? And all of this is couched in a promise of restoration. God is so gracious. He says, yet even now return to me in verse 12. God's patience is over the entire Old Testament. Moses pled with the Lord in Exodus 34 to spare Israel after their idolatry, after they build a golden calf. And God does so because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's exactly what Joel talks about, that the only hope Israel has is not in their own righteousness, but in the good and gracious character of God. God's mercy and grace are by definition unmerited. He doesn't owe us restoration, but when he gives it, we should take it. And there's this humility there where Joel says that God may in fact restore Israel. It's not a presumption saying that God has to do it, but rather, God, we know that we've blown it, but we're just asking you for mercy. That's faith. And that's an actual allusion to Jonah 3.9, where God shows mercy to the evil Ninevites. And he does the same kind of thing. Maybe God will relent from judging the Ninevites. Now, if God would show mercy to a bunch of godless Ninevites, how much more would he show mercy to his own people who have repented? It's logic right from Jonah. And it's sort of this reversal. Israel, you judge the pagan nations. But you know better than them. And you should know better because you have the word of God. You have a history in which God has shown faithfulness to you. And then Joel ends with a plea for Israel to cry out to the Lord. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So Israel knows they've sinned, but they ask that they, as God's heritage, may not suffer reproach. In other words, they're saying to God, if they see that we've been abandoned by you, the nations will no longer glorify you or they won't. They'll start to believe that maybe you're a negligent God. It's a very bold kind of ask of the Lord to do something on that basis. And yet there it is. But it's a biblical call. Repentance begins when we acknowledge that we exist for God, not the other way around. And restoration begins when we realize we should not want it any other way. 
And so Israel is invited to repentance in light of God's mercy, invited to repentance, not based on their own righteousness, but on, 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 the, on the good, gracious character of God. To say, God, we want the nations to see how good you are. So save us, redeem us, that we might not disgrace your name with our sin. Show the world how good it is to be forgiven. And I think about the Apostle Paul when he says, yeah, I'm the least of the apostles. And it might be that God has used me as an example of his patience to show that anyone can be saved. That if Paul, the chief of sinners, can be forgiven, then the doors of salvation are open to all who repent and trust in Christ.